0: Love to have you take your Bibles, and if you have one there handy, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter one and of course, the study sheet that you 'll find in your bulletin will be very helpful to you as we we move along. Today, we step into a whole new preaching series that will take us all the way until next summer oh there 'll be little excurses out of that, but for the most part, we will be in the Gospel of Matthew until about the end of June. And of course with the shifting of of uh, a series as you know always comes the shifting of a little bit of artwork and uh, so you find a little different picture on the front of your bulletin and that as well as the photo on the screens are taken from this original painting right here and this was done by Felina Martins and in person you see a little bit more of the the the, the glitter and so on uh, that you can't quite capture but it will it will help us, at least initially here, uh, to, th- to think about and to remember some of the major themes of the Gospel of Matthew, the king and his kingdom, uh, both of those themes that work together through this book. Uh, as you look with me on your study sheet today, there's going to be a whole number of things of, of review. And Matthew 1, as we come today to verses 1 through 17, you're quickly going to look at this and say, that looks like a genealogy. That'll make out quite a riveting sermon now, won't it? Uh, well, okay, I acknowledge the genealogy part, but um, we're going to be fine here, I think, this morning. So I come to the Gospel of Matthew, um, I am, I'm often struck by the section between Malachi and Matthew 1. Well, you say well, what's in between there? Well, in my book there or by my bible there are some notes and things, but between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New, there's a there's a time period of history that some have called the 400 silent years. That is between the close of the Old Testament, all the promises of a savior to come. There was a, a period of time where nothing, it would seem, happened on the the history of redemption for about 400 years. That is a very long time till Matthew, till the beginning of the new Testament here, but 400 years, what happens in 400 years where it seems that, that God has forgotten. I can just imagine, you know, great grandma, so-and-so once told about God's special work, but we haven't seen any of that for hundreds of years. Hundreds of years, imagine. Often draw to mind a New Testament story very familiar to you where this business of the timing of God and his apparent absence is, is, is very vivid. It's a story in John 11 of um, Lazarus, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, little family, close friends with Jesus. And um, if you remember the story, maybe you do. Remember, Lazarus got sick. I mean, really sick, not a cold. No, very ill and and his family got concerned for that he was going to die, and so they sent word to Jesus, their friend, right? your friend, and they said, "Lord, the one you love is sick, and to read Matthew, or John eleven, you find that Jesus, having heard that, that his friend was so ill, he didn 't go it's very troubling he didn't go he didn 't go. he waited two days during which time Lazarus dies. And then Jesus says, now we're going to go. He shows up, of course, at the family home, Bethany, outside Jerusalem. And the two sisters of Jesus, who I think had been talking, okay, they knew they'd sent word to Jesus. In a sense, they prayed, you might say. And he didn't come. So, so both of them, in turn, they go one after the other to Jesus. And there is an, they make the same statement, which is why I think they were talking. Uh-huh. But their statement is an implied question. One after the other says to Jesus, their friend, Lord, if you'd been here, our brother wouldn't have died. So what's the question? Have you ever asked that? Same question. Where were you, Jesus? All kinds of other days come and go. And if you're not here, it's fine. But then on the day we need you, you you didn't come. And our brother died and now he's gone. And here we are. And oh, my goodness. I find there um, such comfort that Jesus does not smack them. And certainly there's an overriding uh, story and he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead and all of that. But in the moment, in the moment, they don't know that all they know is that that it looks like they asked and got nothing. So my, my title this morning uh, to kind of help us think about this initial section in Matthew's gospel, God's plans are always on time. I just, I want to grab a hold of that, that moment um, that now, now it's time. It's now time for the story of Jesus to unfold. And it has been 400 years of waiting I I call all that out because if there, I don't even have to say if, there are times in your life as there are times in mine that I, I ask, I think it's a good request, and for whatever reason, God says no. And I find great assurance here as the gospel story unfolds that when it comes to this this moment, it's a reminder to us he didn't forget the whole time. He isn't late. He's doing something that he hadn't told me about, and I can still trust him. All that is kind of a backdrop to the book of Matthew. For all of us who at times have asked and waited and and prayed, I want to pray for us now that God will help us today and in the weeks ahead as we study this book, that we're going to read the text. And today we're going to lay a whole bunch of groundwork in in place, all right, for for months of study, because we're going to walk into the story of Jesus. And uh, my goodness, we'll have our cages rattled more than once, I am confident. But I'd like to pray for us if you would join me in that now. Father, even as this gospel opens, we're met with question. 400 years is a long time to wait. People had come and gone. People were born and died. And it seemed like heaven was silent, maybe forgotten all about it. And, oh, Father, I thank you for the reminder here, just this this little tidbit, as as the gospel stories begin here, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, a reminder that you didn't forget. You didn't forget the whole time. You, you, You didn't just drop us off. You saw you, you cared, and when the time was right, you, you acted. And our Father, we, we need these faith reminders because we, we too live in, in, in a life where we don't always, we just don't know what you're doing. We don't see behind the veil. And I pray that this morning you would help us as we join Matthew on a faith journey and and see the story of Jesus unfold and hear the words and the journey to the cross and all of these things, empty tomb. Our Father, would you help us, help us, help us, as those who want to learn and those who want to to see you. So meet us here today, I pray, in the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. Because it's a morning with uh, some background material and so on, I would direct your attention to this part that says, welcome to Matthew's gospel there on your study sheet. And I just like to let you know why we're doing what we're doing. It's been four years since we spent dedicated time preaching in one of the gospels. Now, I want to be careful about what I just said. It hasn't been four years since we've preached the gospel. That's not what I said. But it has been four years since we have preached through one of the gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. To look back over the last 17 and a half years or so that I have been privileged to to preach here, uh, we began in Mark, I think it was 2004, and we worked our way through the Gospel of Mark. Then in about 2010, we took a trip through uh, John, Gospel of John. Then in about 2014, we looked at Luke and Acts together, and now we come again to that other gospel that we have not come to yet, the book of Matthew. And we get to, we get to walk with Jesus. And I, I say here, I never like to be very far away from the person and work of Jesus. Uh, that's, that's why I like to come regularly. And, and, and about every four or five years, it feels about right to me. I'm glad to be here once, once again. Now, I, I again, got to tell you these things ahead of time so you know what's going on. All right. How many chapters in the book of Matthew? That's a quiz. Uh, okay, you're right. 28. There's 28. Now, now think about this. This is that thing in school that you, you just loved called fractions. All right. Stay with me on this. We're going to be dealing with the Gospel of Matthew in about 36 or so sermons. All right. Now, this is that fraction thing. If you, if you think about preaching 28 chapters and 36 sermons, that means that some of the sections that we'll cover are going to be larger by necessity. Um, I really don't like sermon series for my style to go longer than a preaching year. In other words, if we're going to say we're going to start in Matthew, we're going to be here for the next four years. This is not going to work. Okay? not only will some of us have completely forgotten where it started by the time we get halfway through, but others will have joined us and they'll have no idea what the first part was even all about. So I, I like to do things in a in a preaching year, in a ministry year. So 28 chapters. About 36 sermons, time out at Christmas and some other things, I know. But that means some of the sections will be bigger. And some of you are going to have kind of the, the wind blowing through your hair feel. Like, good night, man. That whole chapter at once. And it's like, yep, um, it'll be fine. But part of the good news for that, some of you are more minutiae and microscope it down. You'll be all right. Just breathe your way through it. But one of the benefits of doing some larger sections is there are some themes that you catch when you do a bigger flyover, that if you cut it up in little pieces, you, you miss. Okay? So, so anyway, I just want to reassure you. Oh, well, there's some other things there. But if you look at your study sheet, then, I want, to, I want to point you to two sections. It'll tell you what I'm doing today. All right? One says, listen to the music, where I'm going to comment on a number of things about how we'll approach Matthew. We're going to read the text and uh, talk about several things here in this initial paragraph. And then i would call it Understand the Musician, where I want to spend a few minutes talking about Matthew, the human instrument through which God has given us this book, all right? So listen to the music, understand the musician, and I'll comment more on all of that in just a minute. But I want to read the text, Uh, Matthew 1, 1 through 17, and of course, I'll include the first line of 18 just to give you a sense of where we're going. I want to tell you, as we we step in here, this genealogy-type deal— Several people look at this and would say, well, well, I've wondered how to say those names. So today I'm finally going to (laughs) learn. Not quite so fast. I'm making it up too. All right. Just so you know, many, many names that we read in the Bible have a Hebrew pronunciation or a Jewish connotation to them, and they'd say it different then. So the way I'm going to just do it today isn't necessarily the way anybody else has ever done it before. Okay. So. On some of them, I don't know either, but we're going to do it. Let's read together then God's word. Matthew 1, in this initial section, look with me. We read this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab, Amminadab, the father of Nishan, and Nishan, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Now, you could pause right there and put a big exclamation mark. That's a big deal. That's part of why it's all here. Now, we go on. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asaph, Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, Joram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, Amos, the father of Josiah, Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. That's a historical marker. That was a moment of God's judgment, where generation after generation had ignored God and disobeyed him egregiously. So this is a marker. Now, verse 12. Then, after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, Abiud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Akim, Akim, the father of Eliud, Eliud, the father of Eleazar; Eleazar, the father of Methan, Methan, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David... Were 14 generations from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. And that's where we'll be next week. The first 17 verses. Now you might look at those and go, wow, you come in your Bible reading, go yada, 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 yada. Okay. Let's go to verse 18. I understand. Uh, There's a great reason for this section, however. The the story that's told in the Gospel of Matthew is a story of Jesus, who was purported to be and presented as the Jewish Messiah, the heir to the Davidic throne. So this first section deals with credentials. It's like Ancestry.com. You said you're Italian. Let's go find out. All right. So a Jewish crowd really cares about what we just read. It matters a lot, because if somebody's going to come and say you're the Jewish Messiah, I want to know where you came from. Who's your daddy? Who's your grandpa? So it matters a lot to a Jewish crowd. I think that's an important thing to think about. Now, a little bit of comment here on my, my allusion to, to music. Listen to the music. Back in 2010, when we preached through uh, the Gospel of John, if you were here, which is some of you anyway, you may remember that as we began, John, be, John starts with, with what I called an overture, okay? An overture, if you think a musical score, an overture is a part of the music that introduces some of the themes that you're going to see later on, and you don't even notice at the time. And I use the analogy of the sound of music, right? There's an overture that you, don't even, you, you haven't heard yet. You haven't heard all the great songs but in the overture you're introduced to it so that when you watch it the second time you hear raindrops on roses but is, you, ha- you don't know the song yet the overture's introducing things now each of the gospels plays a song it's the melody of jesus matthew mark luke john to 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 read the gospels of course is to realize they're all pointed at the same person they're telling a similar story but they're including some different details some very similar details especially Matthew Mark and Luke often called the synoptic gospels they're approaching the story of Jesus kind of in a similar way the gospel of John takes a little bit of a different angle a little more of a thematic approach okay but but all the gospels together you could say are playing the same basic music But there are some nuances, there's some differences going on. And so the music, the music being played, you want to look for the similarities with the other Gospels, and there are some distinctive elements that Matthew's going to play. And, And to think about it, you go, okay, I get it, and I'm doing this, so that when you read the book, and we come and we hear it preached, you're going to go, I see it. That was from the overture, wasn't it? I'm going to go, yeah, baby, that's from the beginning, and you'll know, okay? So... I I say to you here then several things. There's six items. I've just gotten bullet points here. The person and work of Jesus are the center of the Bible. Just some introductory things. That's why there's four Gospels. There's a lot of the New Testament is about this. The person and work of Jesus are the center of the Bible. And all these four Gospels together, they're they're painting a picture. The Old Testament leading the way, uh, telling the story of one who is to come. Then the the letters to follow all build on the, the person and work of Christ. Um, So it's important to, to see Christ in the middle of it all. Now, several things about this story of Jesus. According to the Bible, Jesus came at exactly the right time. He was not late. Even after 400 years of waiting, God was on time. Though people probably lived and died and said, where is he? God was not late in what he did. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. Uh, emphasize this as the apostle Paul would say that Christ came in the fullness of time. It was exactly the right time to study it. Historically is to see uh, Rome, of course, as a world power at this time to see the, 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 the the Roman peace people identify it that way. Sometimes in Latin, the Pax Romana, all of these things talking about a time when uh, there was, there was political peace, even though it was by a sword, there were Roman roads, a common language, No, Jesus came at exactly the right time, according to God's plan. Now, the New Testament presents Christ with his identity confirmed. This is so important by countless prophecies fulfilled. That'll be key to the book of Matthew, as I'll mention in a moment. His identity is confirmed. If you like to ask questions like, like, is this deal really true? Fulfilled prophecy is is one of the things that should be an undergird to your faith. It should undergird your faith. Fulfilled prophecies. Matthew was really big on this. And I give you a couple of texts from Peter just, to, just to talk about the topic in general of prophecies. In first Peter one, you can look at some of these things. Peter references the Old Testament prophets. And he, he describes the prophecies that were laid out page after page in the Old Testament. He says, even the prophets didn't understand them at the time. Peter calls them things into which angels long to look. And then in 2 Peter 1, Peter, again, not Matthew, but Matthew could say the same thing. Peter mentions, he, he, says, he says, we did not follow cleverly devised tales when, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We, we were there. We were there on the mountain and we heard the voice from heaven. When he died on the cross, we stood there and watched him die and we went to the empty tomb and I saw it. So Peter would say that Matthew could say the same thing. And I witness one of that initial 12, a band who were followers of Jesus. And then not only the right time, his identity confirmed by prophecy, but his deity affirmed by his well-documented resurrection from the dead. And, My goodness sakes, I reference here, book of Acts chapter 26. I really love this text. It's got a, it's got an element of, of, um, oh, I don't know what you would call it here. It, it, I just like the way it's worded. The apostle, the apostle Paul is talking to King Festus and you may remember it. If you've read the text, he's talking to King Festus. Who's this, this Jewish guy. And he's talking about the work of Jesus, what he did right there in Jerusalem, right? Here's what happened. Here's what happened. Here's what happened. And then he says, uh, I'm confident that this didn't escape your notice because it wasn't done in a corner. I just think that's really cool. That's a funny thing to say. Um, it happened right there in their own town. He says, yeah, of course, you know what we're talking about. It was in the Jerusalem times or whatever. Everybody was talking. This wasn't done in a corner. His deity affirmed by the well-documented resurrection from the dead. Matthew 1.1. Then if you'd look at this with me, please I want to make a number of comments on this opening verse. First of all, it says this in my Bible, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. That one sentence is loaded with all kinds of information. The book genealogy, you think, well, okay, it's a list. Okay. The the, the term that's used can mean genealogy. It can also mean the beginning. It's the, the, the Greek word would be Genesis, that kind of a deal to a Jewish reader, early days, of course, this would draw to mind another beginning, another book of Genesis. It's very similar to the beginning of Genesis one. 1. The beginning, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and how you have, now you have another Genesis. There's, there's so many elements between the Gospels, Matthew in particular, that if you don't mind the big term, it's a recapitulation. It's, it, it's like a revisit to some of the elements at the beginning. Elements in Genesis is like if you know the story in Genesis, including the, the showdown with the devil. you guess what you're going to find in the book of Matthew? Oh, my goodness. Another showdown with the devil will be there in a few chapters. Genesis, the beginning, then the book of the Genesis, the beginning. It can also be translated genealogy, of course, as here. But the, the hint of the beginnings of Jesus Christ. Now, I mentioned here in your study sheet, two important titles are given here. When you see the name Jesus Christ, okay, better get this. When you see the name Jesus Christ, often we read that the way we read somebody's name here, like Billy Bob or Mary Sue, like you know, well, it's they're from down south, and it's the first name and their middle name. They just go like everybody down south. I mean, Billy Bob and you know, Jim Bob and all these other people. But that's not it with Jesus Christ. Jesus, Yeshua. Uh, is, is like the Old Testament word Joshua, right? You have Jesus as his proper name, which again you'll find in chapter 1, verse 21, the angel speaking to, to Joseph. You you'll, shall bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua. But it, the, the, the term Christ, though, isn't his middle name, nor is it his last name. It is a title. Do you know that? It's a title. Christ. Christ means Christ. The anointed one, the Messiah, or, or if you will, the King. It, it is identifying Jesus as the one to whom all the Old Testament prophets were pointing the whole time, the Messiah. Uh, At least one translation, I figured it out first hour because I asked, somebody had it, the New Revised Standard Version or something, translates chapter 1, 1 and chapter 1, verse 17, that way, Messiah, instead of saying Christ, it says, Jesus, the Messiah. There's a reason for that. So when you read the terms and you see the name Jesus Christ, good to remember that just by that term, Jesus Christ, it's an acknowledgement of something very big. He is the one to whom all the Old Testament prophets were pointing. Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one, the coming one. Now, a second, uh, kind of an official title that shows up here. Jesus Christ, son of David. That's an official title. Son of David. Son of David. So I'll comment a little more fully in a minute. It's a throwback to the reader to 2 Samuel 7. A good Jewish audience gets it in a moment. In fact, again, uh, using the overture as an analogy, uh, about 10 times, I think it is, in the gospel of Matthew, you find people speaking of Jesus as the son of David. You're going to see it. So Matthew introduces it in the first verse, doesn't say anything more about it, but later on, you're going to find, for example, people in need of healing calling out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy, have mercy on me. They're acknowledging him as the Davidic king. It's a title. It's a formal title. It'd be like somebody calling a person today the president or a senator. And it means something. You don't just call your neighbor that. Maybe you do for fun, but you don't mean it, right? No, to say son of David is to say, no, the coming king. Uh, because Jesus was long foretold in the Old Testament. And there in 2 Samuel 7, God speaking through his prophet tells David in what we call the Davidic covenant, there will be a greater king come from you, come through your line, who will sit on your throne forever of his kingdom. There'll be no end, Isaiah would say. There's coming a greater king. So to call Jesus the son of David, oh my goodness sakes, huge. Further than son of Abraham, a little less of a title, but nevertheless, it's a reminder of the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, Genesis 12, 1, 2, and 3. And we'll speak a little more about those, I think, in a minute or two here. But those are two big titles, and Matthew starts off with just a barrage of information. Now, I put here on your study sheet under listening to the music, Matthew's target audience would appear to be the Jewish crowd. It's very important for you to know. He presents Jesus, of course, as son of David, as we've said, son of Abraham. Uh, Paul talks about that in Galatians. I give you the reference The coming king of a kingdom. And Matthew assumes broad knowledge of the Old Testament. I brought a book I want to introduce you to. I often bring books. Um, This is not one that I have read all of. This isn't a read-it-all-of book. This is a reference book, okay? But I bring this because, again, as we preach here, I I like to provide resources and things, things that you should know about. Because you're students of the Bible, too. So that as you read and study, you can find your way around and know about things that are here to help you, too. And this is a very helpful book. It's, you know, you have to mortgage the house to get it. But it's called A Commentary on the New Testament Use of the Old Testament. I know, riveting title. It will keep you up at night. Oh, I think I'm going to read that. Yeah, okay, no. By G.K. Beale and D.A. Carson, who are editors of this. They didn't write it all. But it is a it is a book that helps you as you study the New Testament. Because if you've, if you've done that, if you read the New Testament, you know there are times when it, when it references an Old Testament text, and maybe just on a whim, you look it up. And you go, wait a minute. I don't see the connection between the two. How is that a fulfillment of... Of this And maybe the wording's a little different. You go, wait, did he just, he just tweaked that? Did he just tweak that to, to say what he wanted it to? Say? What is he doing here? What's going on? Well, you have GK Beale and DA Carson by your bedside. All right. This, this book covers every single use of the old Testament in the new. You can look it up and go and get their opinion about how it works. Huh? That's what they think on Hebrews chapter one. How fun is that? Well, all right. Case in point. I'm going to read the opening paragraph on the gospel of Matthew. Uh, Again, the two editors didn't write this. Craig Blomberg wrote on Matthew. But I I, I come here. I want you to see that. I want you to see that these kinds of tools exist. All right. So um, you, you just may want this for Christmas or something. Matthew's gospel. It begins like this. Listen carefully. This will help us says the hebrew scriptures or christian old testament permeate matthew's gospel approximately 55 references prove close enough in wording for commentators typically to label their quotations to label them quotations compared to about 65 for the other canonical gospels put together 55 just matthew 65 mark luke and john so matthew by far Uses the Old Testament much, much more. 20 of these texts unique to Matthew. 12 times Matthew speaks explicitly of a passage or a theme of Scripture being fulfilled. As you read the Gospel of Matthew along with me, many of you will. I would commend it to all of you. As we preach through a book, why not read it? Maybe even multiple times. As you do, you will notice as it is written, as it is written, this fulfills. You'll see it all over the place. All right, that's what these guys are talking about. In addition, he says, to explicit quotations, numerous allusions and echoes of scripture may be discerned in every part of this gospel, roughly twice as often as in Matthew, or sorry, Mark, Luke, or John. Virtually every major theological emphasis of Matthew is reinforced with Old Testament support. why, Why does Matthew do that? I'll tell you. He does this because he wants you to believe it. That's why. He's wanting to reinforce your faith. And he's writing, again, a largely Jewish audience who trusted the Old Testament, who knew it well. They believed it. And so when Matthew comes along and says, now let me tell you the story of this guy named Jesus, who is the Messiah. There are going to be some critical thinkers saying, oh, really? And Matthew was wanting to say, you remember the Old Testament? You Remember the Old Testament? You trust that. So believe this. Matthew, again, man, this is important for our preaching it is us, us as a church family. The word of God is never just given. So you'll be a smarter person. See, so you know more. So that in come June, we can have a Bible trivia game on Matthew and you could win. Take home the trophy. There's no trophy. See, no, the, the Bible's never given just so you'd be smarter and win Bible trivia. It's not. It's written to change your life by, by shaping your faith and, and taking those areas of doubts and smashing them. So they say, no, I do believe that he is the Christ. He's my savior. John would later say, of course, about his, about his letter, his, sorry, his book telling the story of Jesus. These are written so that you'd believe. I want you to believe. I want you to trust Christ, believing you'd have life in his name. That's Matthew's goal as well. So Old Testament, I'll be back to this in just a minute or two. Look, come back with me to your study sheet. So, so I'm saying this, Matthew's target audience would appear to be Jewish, but next bullet point, at the very same moment, at the very same time that Matthew is writing, with a Jewish slant, I want you to know Matthew has an inclusive message. He's not, he's not just writing a book for a Jewish crowd. And I I'm, I'm want to turn here to Matthew chapter 28 Kind of the close. It's the end toward which all the rest is pointing. All the, the scholars and others who study the book of Matthew would would assert that everything prior to Matthew 28, 16 is written for this last paragraph. All right? So it's, it's, it's very specific. It's like a bullet. And here's here's the target. It's the end. It's the last paragraph. This is that end toward which all the rest is pointing. Matthew 28, 16 to 20 we quickly look at this and say oh that's the great commission and you're right so leading up to this moment we've heard the story of jesus we've seen parable after parable we've heard him teach and we've walked with him to the cross where jesus died in our place paying for all of our sin all of our rottenness and all the good stuff we should have done and we didn't christ rose from the dead and now it it comes to this moment And you'll notice three alls, okay? Three alls. Jesus says in verse 18, Jesus came and he said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Stop for a minute. All authority. That is an audacious statement. That is uh, ludicrous if it isn't true. All authority. What would you you think of a politician who said that? All authority has been given to me. We would go, oh, buddy, we are in serious trouble. See? All (laughs) authority. It's a statement of deity. It is all authority is heaven on earth has been given to me. Jesus said it and he meant it. All authority is mine. And I can say this to you. He could. And so he does go therefore and make disciples of here's the second. All, what is it? All the nations, all authority is mine. And I am now telling you based on my authority. Jesus says, go into all the world as you're going into all the world. Make disciples, there's the key, key uh, command, make disciples of all the nations. It's for everybody. It's not just for a Jewish crowd. No, a Jewish Messiah, yes, to bless the nations, Abrahamic covenant. Blessing to the nations, disciples of all the nations. Ba- doing two things, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe, what is it? Third all, all that I've commanded you, don't leave anything out. Teach them the whole counsel of God, as Paul would use that phrase. So, all authority, all the nations, all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the very end, the very end of the age. Keep doing this, keep doing this until I come. Wow. This is the end toward which all of Matthew's gospel is pointing. Now, if you look back at your study sheet, Matthew's gospel will meet the king, absolutely, and his kingdom. You're familiar with the Gospels. You know that Matthew uses the term the Gospel of the Kingdom many, many times. The other Gospel writers do not. The Matthew, uh, Matthew's Gospel emphasizes this issue of Kingdom. You're going to hear me talk about that. Some of you are kind of up on a lot of the discussions in theology, um, different theological systems, slice and dice, Kingdom in different ways, spiritual Kingdom, physical Kingdom. Is a Kingdom inaugurated? Is it not inaugurated? Is it a Kingdom to come? Is it now over? Are we in it now? I would quickly say, does it look like it? But I'll leave that for another day. (laughs) That was a teaser in case you didn't know that. Yeah, we'll talk about the kingdom. We will. And you're going to hear my understanding of what Jesus was talking about with the kingdom. What's now? What's later? And what are we talking about with kingdom? Yes, we'll address those things. It's a major theme, the gospel of the kingdom, if you will. Now, Matthew's gospel, just so you know, five major discourses. We're going to touch on all those two, five major teaching sessions, beginning with um, uh, Sermon on the Mount and concluding with the Olivet Discourse. There are five that you can, are identifiable, big sermons. OK, so listen to the music. There's kind of an unpacking of all of that. Now, understanding the musician, I, I want to say several things about Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. That's not like just working for the IRS. One of my sisters just concluded 40 years of working for the IRS. That doesn't necessarily, no matter what you think, it doesn't make her a bad person. It was a job, okay? Now, back in the day, to be a tax collector, this was a whole other deal. That was to put you on a par with a lady of the evening. And is that overstated? Not a bit. In fact, I'm going to read you just a little bit from this cool little book. If you ever want to study the lives of the disciples, right? Here's a book, John MacArthur's book, 12 Ordinary Men. It's one of the only books I know of that really just says, let's meet the guys. All right? And it talks about them. And so this little section here on Matthew, I'm going to read you just a couple little portions. Uh, It says this, in all likelihood, none of the 12 was more notorious as a sinner than Matthew. How about that? We typically think of the bad guy being Judas. Boo, hiss is what you do in a good Jewish crowd. Say his name. Oh, no, no, no. He's the bad guy. But Matthew... Matthew was a tax collector. Man, he's a bad guy. He says down here, tax collectors were among the most despised people in Israel, hated and vilified in all of Jewish society. Here he becomes an apostle of Jesus. Why were they so hated? Well, here's the idea. To be a tax collector, you bought the privilege. You, like you buy a tax booth. It might be at a major crossroads. You bought it from, from the Roman government, the invaders. You're working for the bad guys. And as a tax collector, let's just say you've got the, I've got the intersection up here by Bridgeport and Cirque. Seems like a nice place. Now, the government wants a buck for every car that goes through. That's not nearly enough, so I'm going to charge five. Who gets the rest? Oh, that's right, me. And of course, if you don't pay, I've got Guido and Louie. And they were known to shake people down rather aggressively if you don't come up with the money. That's just an example. There were no cars and no intersections like that. You get the idea, right? But they could collect, and they could collect more. And typically, they were very, very rich and very, very disliked. Matthew, the tax collector. Matthew, in stay stay with me here. Matthew 10, a, he, he, he's writing, of course, writing his own gospel. He only mentions himself by name twice. One of those is in Matthew 10 where he he talks, he just gives a list of the disciples. He doesn't give everybody's occupation, like so-and-so the fisherman, so-and-so the fisherman. So, he doesn't do that until he gets to his name, where he says, Matthew, the tax collector. Why doesn't he just sweep that under the rug? You know, Matthew, the businessman. Now, he, he never forgot where he came from. He never forgot. Now, back in Matthew 9 you'll find the story of the day that Matthew's in his tax, Levi, he's also called that, sitting in his tax, little tax booth. And Jesus comes along and says, follow me. Now, no doubt Matthew knew about him before. Every reason to think so. People knew about Jesus. And here comes this esteemed teacher to Matthew, the filthy, rotten guy. He knew it. To be a tax collector was to know you're on the bad list, and most of them didn't care because you're filthy rich. Great retirement. Jesus, the good guy teacher, comes along and says, "Matthew, follow me." Isn't that amazing. Matthew pulls the curtain down, and in that moment, that's a big deal. He didn't just shut it for the day; he walked away from it to follow this this Jesus. Absolutely amazing. Now. In in, in the story that follows, Matthew 9, it says there was this big party at a house. Now, Matthew doesn't mention whose house it was. Luke outs him, right? Luke points out, no, that was Matthew's house. He threw this big old party, and it was full of tax collectors and sinners. So many that, in fact, the, the, the religious rulers walked by and went, boy, Jesus hangs out with riffraff. Look at those guys. It's a whole house full of scoundrels. Light it on fire, kind of is the idea. Why do you think Matthew invited to a big party a whole bunch of tax collectors and sinners? Was he just being evangelistic? Most likely, that's the only people he knew. The only people who would have come to his house were the riffraff. There was people with a reputation. So Jesus calls Matthew, come. Matthew says, could I introduce you to my friends? Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> I know. Can you come to my house? Jesus says, absolutely. He'll come to your house. He'll meet your friends. What's for dinner? What's at the bar? I don't know. And it's not in the story. Jesus comes. That's Matthew, the tax collector. I love Jesus walking into his house. I love Jesus calling him. Another little interesting thing, and uh, John MacArthur makes a, a big point of this. So Matthew's like, if I was to use today's political parties... He's he would be on the left side, right? He'd be on the social liberal, probably a left leaning Democrat. Among, <laughs> I'm sorry, if you're a left leaning Democrat, I'm not. I'm not bashing. I'm just saying he'd be over there someplace. Okay. Now, also on the list of disciples was a guy by the name of Simon the Zealot. Okay. Now the Zealots were were. Well known for for hating the Romans and anybody who hung out with the Romans, they were they were the right wing uh, NRA folks way over here. And again, I'm not. Be, I'm just using this as an example. So don't meet me in the parking lot later. So you got you got Matthew way over there, and you got you got Simon Zelote, Simon the Zealot. In fact, in the in the Zealot crowd, there were dagger men. There was a small group that were reputed to have curved daggers in their robes. And it were sworn on oath that if you ever get alone with a Roman person or an associate, if you can do it and get out of there, we're just going to leave a little stream of bodies like, like terrorists. So Jesus says, Simon, the zealot, follow me, Mr. Right wing Republican NRA guy, ultra conservative. And by the way, you over here, come follow me. Imagine. Same little campfire at night. I can just picture Matthew looking over there at Simon and going, let's see, I think I'm going to sleep on this side of the campfire tonight. I'm not going to shut my eyes till I hear him snoring. I don't know if that's true or not, but I love how Jesus, he he, he doesn't just say, I'm after one kind of person. I'm after the nice squeaky clean ones, the ones who went to Sunday school all their life. They can hang out with me. Oh no, no, no. He invited this one and this one and this one. He said, come, come follow me. Follow me. I love it. Now, Just a couple things in a hurry. The men in this audience, as I read the the genealogy, no doubt, if you're familiar with Old Testament stories, you can think of some of them who were liars, lawbreakers, immoral men, uh, idolaters, and you'd be right. Some of those names of kings, you take good guy, oh, Hezekiah, he was a good guy. Manasseh, oh, boo, hiss, not so good. Write down the list. The, The list is filled of good guys and bad guys together. What about the girls, the ladies? There are five named or referenced Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, who isn't even named is the wife of Uriah, Mary, of course, the mother of Jesus. Four of them are not even Jewish. You know that? Not even Jewish in his genealogy. Jesus includes the nations. That interesting. Different ethnic groups are plunged here into this genealogy of Messiah. I love that. All of this then, 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations, and so on, leads you to the Christ, the Christ. Verse 17. If you look at my response section, that's where we're going to end. A couple of things. As we enter another ministry year, uh, let us commit ourselves, recommit ourselves to be diligent students of God's word. And please look at how I worded this. Uh, I did it on purpose this way. Not only students of God's word who know things, but students of God's word who follow the path of God's word directly to Christ. And in so doing pursue humble, repentant lives of obedience. Um, how much do you need to repent? How often? What is that? A, like a once a month thing or a couple times a year or Martin Luther put it this way. When our Lord and master said, Jesus, uh, Jesus Christ said, repent, He intended that the entire life of a believer would be one of repentance. Sorrow for sin and a turning in another direction. You know what? You and I need, need, need to repent. Turn. A lot more often than we think. Whether it's from words we say or things we do. We need God's work right here. Commit ourselves. Let's do that. Let's commit ourselves to be those who truly trust Christ as our savior from sin. Not merely people who hear, but those who truly trust Christ. It's my desire that all who hear my voice, both in the room, those who listen online, those who listen later through other media, that every person would be trusting Christ as their savior from sin by grace, through faith, not of works. No one can boast. And I, I hope today that you are trusting Christ and him alone is your savior from sin. There is no other way to be right with God. And then finally, I reference a little story from John, John six. It's a great story. I love it. Big moment. Jesus says some very hard things and a whole bunch of people are walking out the door. And Jesus doesn't chase them and say, please don't go. No, don't go. You can't leave. He, he, he lets them go. And then there's a moment where Jesus looks at his followers, the close guys, and he says, are you going to leave too? And Simon Peter, speaking for the others, said, Lord, to whom shall we go? We don't understand what you just said. We don't understand your will and your way. We have nowhere else to go. I hope that would be you. I hope that would be you. Let's follow him. Would you stand with me? Let's pray together as we close today. Father, we begin today by thinking about those moments in our lives when we wonder about your purpose because we pray and it doesn't seem that you you heard us. I thank you for the reminder today from this text following on 400 years of silence that your plans are always on time, you're not a day late, that you heard us the whole time, and even now you hear us today. And I know that around this room there are many who are praying very hard for very specific things. Oh God, help, help. I pray today, our father, not simply that you would do what we ask. Oh, sometimes we ask and we don't know what we're asking, but father, that you would build faith in us. Trust rock solid that we, we know maybe not what you're doing, but we know the one, we know the one to whom we speak. We trust you. You're good. You know what you're doing. Father, do that. Do that in us. Thank you for this, this group this morning. Bless us, each one. In Jesus' name, amen.